This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And we heard earlier from Delta Airlines, Carol, uh, that stock falling again right. uh, after warning the airline did, the Atlanta-based airline, that worsening cost pressure is they're likely to linger into next year. This is following a warning that we already heard a week ago, and apparently it's a bit worse than even we thought. Well, I think this is what's kind of staggering, and I think Wall Street's trying to get their head around this. So it's the second warning in, what, a couple of weeks. Stock's down about 2.4%. It was down as much as 5.3% at today's lows. It's now at 52.64 a share. But I think <laughs> from an observer and someone who's been doing businesses for a long time, a flyer. But, but more importantly, if I'm an investor, I'm like, well, wait a minute. What didn't you know right. a week or two ago when you came out and pre announced we one would have assumed that was all the bad news i mean that's i mean if i was running a company that's how you want to do it you want to get it all out there and then you get into earnings season because then people are like okay got it when this happens it makes investors scratch their head having said that the stock's not down as much as it was right earlier uh, so alex Steele, our colleague on bloomberg television caught up with the ceo of delta ed bastion earlier today here's what he had to say the paradigm in this industry has changed a lot over the years. One of the things at Delta that we've done is, is improve the quality of the service and the, the people and the investments that we're making in the product. And what you've seen at Delta over the last five years is our revenue growth story has been very strong. Our customer scores, our, our market share continues to grow. Uh, we'll, we're always competitive, of course, but we compete more these days on quality and mm-hmm. reliability and not exclusively on price any longer. And uh, that share, as I say, tends to stay with Delta as we uh, as we we uh, pull it in. And that's Delta CEO Ed Bastian speaking earlier today with Alex Steele on Bloomberg Daybreak Americas. Let's bring in George Ferguson. He's our senior aerospace defense and Aer- airlines analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Um, George, make some sense of this because here it is what, you know, warning for the second time in as many weeks. Um, I think you got to say, well, wait, what's going on here? Yes, yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on. And so I, I'd say that uh, we have been seeing this for some time, and that is that there's, a, there's a, a lot of pressure on fares in the industry. And while I appreciate, um, you know, uh, Ed Bastion obviously uh, m- much more uh, into the weeds and the numbers at Delta than, than we are, but, you know, we, we still think that a lot of uh, consumer behavior in the airline industry is price-driven, and I mean, reliability matters to a degree, but we think at the end of the day, customers are looking for the best price to, to a location. And I, and I think that's what we're seeing around the industry is there's a lot of pressure on fares. Nobody, you know, nobody wants to pay more for what it takes to fly to a, to a certain market than the, than the lowest price they can get. So, George, as somebody who really understands this industry and follows it closely, are you okay, though, with a company that comes out and warns two weeks ago? Um, and then comes out two weeks later and warns again. I mean, is it that tough to get a feel of where consumers are flying and, you know, where the, you know, to, to kind of watch the metrics? Has it gotten that much more difficult? Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, we, we would have loved for them to uh, given us more information, you know, back when they, they warned previously. Um, you know, this is all about future expectations for Delta and so I do think part of it was that maybe the market was expecting more. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because, you know, again, we, you know, we've seen that, you know, that there, there are pricing pressures in the market. We think there is a lot of competition in the marketplace. We think actually that the, the Boeing Max airliner being sidelined right now has eased some of that, that um, competition. And, and we're actually expecting things to get a lot more intense next year as companies like Southwest bring back to the marketplace the, the capacity they couldn't get to the marketplace this year. So I guess, you know, from, a, from an analyst perspective at Bloomberg Intelligence, we've been waiting for this and we think it's going to get worse. But I do think maybe the marketplace thought it would be, be better than this. Well, and it feels like, George, that the expectations have been maybe a little higher for Delta overall, at least from a sentiment perspective, because they have been outperforming their peers. I mean, I'm just looking year to date, even factoring in what's going on today. Delta's still up 5% versus American, its closest rival, which is down 16%. You know, that's just stock to stock percentage wise. Uh, Delta has been on a pretty good path, as it were. Absolutely agree. I think they, um, especially when it comes to the revenue management side of their of their business, I think they've done a great job on revenue management, and they've gotten better yield performance this year than I would have expected. And so, I guess that said, that worries us even a little bit more about the rest of the industry participants when we see Delta having challenges right. get, getting price. That's, okay. a, that's Again, a really interesting point. Yeah. Again, it's a, we think at the core it's still a commodity business. I appreciate what Ed Bastian says. And look, there are definitely some business flyers that are going to go grab Delta because they think Delta gets them the best product at the, you know, for the best timing. But we still think there's a, it's all about price in this business, and that's a big challenge. Even for the business flyer? Well, uh, I mean, for the business flyer, it becomes um, – I think there's still some level of price that matters – but for the business flyer, I think the frequent flyer program matters as well, what yeah. your home airport is. Yeah. Um, and then it does matter to get direct service to the to the destination you're going to, right? Efficient. Business flyers hate to connect, right? So if you've got the right connections, <laughs> yeah. that's how you get it. It is so true. As Jason and I are working on some flights for some traveling, we're like, I don't want to stop I anywhere. I don't want to change planes. <laughs> I don't want to change planes. All right, George Ferguson, we're going to leave it there. Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you so much. But he's exactly right. I mean, and I also feel like business travelers, you know, even corporate rules are starting to say, hold on a second, let's look at the price of this. You know, technology is coming in in a way that it's not so easy to be like, well, I'm flying for business and I'm going to spend whatever it takes. Companies aren't falling for that anymore. Not at all. The Bloomberg Barclays Municipal Index, taxable bonds, total return index. I said the word index twice. I didn't mean to do that. But anyway, if we look at the municipal bond market and index, 13% higher this year. So let's get into the muni world. Uh, Gabe Diedrich is portfolio manager of municipal fixed income over at Wells Fargo Asset Management on the phone from Milwaukee. How is Milwaukee? Well, it's sunny today, but I know it's going to get colder, so we're enjoying it while we can. And so... From your perch there, uh, Gabe, what are you seeing sort of broadly across the muni bond landscape? Because, you know, Carol was talking about how performance pretty good uh, so far this year. What's driving that? What's underneath it? I think there are a few factors at play here. Obviously, the the general rally in global bonds, uh, particularly the U.S. markets, treasuries and corporate debt, you know, that's that's been a factor driving municipals lower in yield and, and up in price. 
I do think still investors are looking for places to protect themselves from taxes, uh, post-tax reform and, and, and post-losing their deductions. So I think that's certainly a factor as well. You put it all together, and I think that package has really been a great year for uh, muni investors. And what in particular, right? There's so many different issues, and we, co- we continue to see new issues every week. So where in particular are you finding opportunities? Well, I think one that's coming up right now is actually in the taxable municipal market. I think when most people think of municipals, they think of debt that they don't have to pay taxes on at the federal level or or maybe even their state level. And that's the lion's share of the market. Um, That's generally about 90% of the issuance in our market. However, this year has been a little different. Uh, Post-tax reform, uh, issuers can't advance refund their deals, so they can't pre-refund them like they once did. The, the workaround has been to issue taxable municipal bonds. So these really compete with bonds in the corporate market. And we've seen issuance spike quite a bit. You know, in fact, usually you'd see about just over 10% of issuance coming as taxable. Right now, that rate is about double. Uh, you know, in this period here, this month and last month, we're seeing it over 20% of issuance. So I think for investors that maybe are in mid-tier tax brackets or lower tax brackets, including institutions, that's a great opportunity to find some high-quality securities. You know, Gabe, we've been talking to a lot of folks lately about broadly the ESG world, environmental, social governance type approaches. We talk a lot about it in the equity space, even in the private equity space. How does that play into the muni world, especially given that so many muni bonds are you know, meant to pay for infrastructure and, and those sorts of projects where presumably this is something folks are paying a lot of attention to? Imagine how the world could be so very fine, so happy together. Well, we've been hoping for some time that the U.S. and China would find a way to be happy together. Hasn't quite gotten there yet, and yet we see some rays of hope uh, here and there. Certainly investors seeming to see it today. Let's understand where we are with these renewed trade talks. Ray Shang is program associate for the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S., she joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C., back with us. Ray, great to have you with Carol and myself. Glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So you're right there in the thick of it where all the meetings are happening. Where are we right now? Because I feel like every hour we get some little morsel of information about at least the tone, if not the substance, of what China and the U.S. are talking about. Right. It's like you said a lot of what we're getting right now is hearsay. The latest that I've been hearing is that there's potentially a mini deal to offset further tariff increases and slow down the economic damage along with some kind of currency pact. Um, But on the Chinese side, I think that there's certainly been an increased sense of hesitation to go back to the table, especially for the significant policy changes that the United States has been pushing for in China's technological sector and industrial policy. Sarah McGregor, you're also with us, U.S. Senior Trade Editor at Bloomberg News. She's on the phone from Los Angeles. Uh, What's the latest that you're hearing about these negotiations? 
So just sort of on a practical level, you know, Liu He met this morning. He was at USTR, the Chinese central bank governor. Those talks are continuing this afternoon. We know that Trump today said that he's probably going to meet with Liu He, the Chinese chief negotiator, tomorrow. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to move the ball forward, especially if Trump himself is intervening. It suggests, you know, he he wants to, if, if something can be done, you know, he probably wants to make an announcement out of it. And if something can't, perhaps to make um, a bit of a show, I think, you know, with the with the U.S., you know, Trump's headed into this election campaign. And so there is some some pressure on them to to try and move forward, even if it is a mini deal. And that might just involve some farming purchases, because, of course, Trump wants to bolster that support base. And so, Ray, is a mini deal enough, I guess? And certainly it depends on who you are, and it depends on how much this is spun and to whom. And to Sarah's good point, you know, part of it is speaking to a very specific constituency, at least on President Trump's side. But what about on the Chinese side? What do they really want to get at this point? You know, recently China celebrated the 70th anniversary of the PRC, and so there were a lot of different speeches and rhetoric that analysts were paying attention to. And my one of my takeaways is that we're likely to see a more overtly competitive stance by Chinese negotiators and policymakers that can really impact business operations by the United States and foreign entities. For a long time, she has held this parallel vision for China national rejuvenation that's on some levels, comparable to make America great again. And so he's no stranger to posturing and policymaking that really focuses on toughness. Hey, Sarah, I'm also curious, you know, in terms of so much conversations about, you know, the really, uh, we need to, you know, overhaul the U.S.-China trade deal. I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces to this. And that, it, you know, I think most people do agree that we need to make some major changes here. But as we said, mini trade deal, um, will we ultimately get there when it comes to things like intellectual property and equal access to markets and, you know, China acting more like a developed market when it comes to trade and all that comes with it? I mean, the U.S. keeps hitting that message every time, you know, people speak. We even had Commerce Secretary Wilbert Ross yesterday, Mm -hmm. you know, really criticizing China, saying it's actually taking a step back on all the areas you just mentioned. But that being said, you know, China didn't come to the talks this week to talk about those issues. I beat that. They really just, I think, at this point, want to take advantage of the Trump administration's position to to try and help farmers or, or at least get an announceable. And so, you know, they're they're really focused on at least stopping the escalation of tariffs or, or getting them removed. And so I think they want to, you know, sort of commit to the minimum that will allow that to happen. And we know we have a tariff increase next Tuesday, October 15th, uh, to 30% from 25 and $250 billion of Chinese goods. And I think right now everyone's eye is on more immediate issues that yeah. the tariff increases the elections. You know, I feel like uh, to both of you, and Ray, maybe I'll take this to you first, is if you had gone back a few years, a different administration, I feel like we'd have this date marked on the calendar and we wouldn't have heard anything until after they met. Uh, the process this week leading up to this this meeting where things have constantly come out in the press, out in the public, whether leaked or whether directly, uh, both China and U.S. kind of playing really tough heading into this. You understand, you know, China-U.S. policy, Ray. What does it say to you that we've seen this? process leading up to this meeting uh, today? 
Well, like you said, there's certainly been no shortage of non-trade factors within the Chinese policy world, and it's become prominent not just within Chinese policy circles, but also with the general public. I'm sure you've all heard of the incident involving the rocket's general manager, a newly banned episode of South Park that is critical of the Chinese Communist Party. You're starting to see the politics of the Chinese Communist Party spotlighted not just amongst policy wonks like myself, but in day-to-day conversations of a wider portion of the American population. So I do think that Americans definitely want, have seen um, increased momentum of increasingly competitive policy with China. But at the same time, Americans also want policy that minimizes pain and is most likely to be successful. So they're more likely to put eggs in a basket for policy actors that can get that job done. Well, and Sarah McGregor, I love Ray's point there because she's exactly right. This is not necessarily about soybeans, which candidly, you know, I don't have a lot of interaction with in my day-to-day life. And a lot of Americans don't unless they're intimately involved in the business of them, not thinking too far down the supply chain. But people do care about LeBron James and they do care about TV shows and they do care about, you know, a lot of these more candidly pedestrian things that we consume on a day-to-day basis. Is this starting to hit home now? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's snowballed, the deterioration in the relationship. And I think we've often lose sight of the fact that this was really supposed to be about leveling the playing field for for businesses, about making sure, you know, American companies' um, intellectual property wasn't being stolen. They could uh, not have to face state subsidies with Chinese companies and compete with them. But it's really now turned into a, a, a sort of, uh, tit for tat that goes into the cultural realm. The U.S. might now limit capital, put on capital controls, right. limit the flow of investment. And so I think it's sort of spiraled out of control, and it's hard for even a consumer right now um, or a company that's importing from China to know where this is headed or really know what are we trying to achieve anymore. Great conversation from both of you. Thank you so much. Sarah McGregor, U.S. Senior Trade Editor for Bloomberg. She joined us on the phone from L.A. And Ray Shong is Program Associate at Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China in the U.S. She joined us on the phone from the nation's capital. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's been a big topic coming up in client conversations, both with individuals, but also institutions, you know, U.S. insurance companies and banks, you know, entities looking for uh, how to invest within this framework. I think that, you know, municipals have been overlooked, but if you think about it intuitively, clean water for a water and sewer deal, affordable housing, uh, schools, uh, obviously, as a sector, uh, things like health care and, and uh, treating the needy uh, with our hospitals. These are all areas of the municipal market that have really strong ESG characteristics. I think the biggest limiter, though, is there aren't a lot of providers out there of data within the municipal market. We've seen them show up in the corporate market and equities like you referenced, but there's less of that available in the municipal marketplace. What, what we're trying to do is put these factors in place because uh, it, it's going to be an important way to invest. You look at the fires taking place this week exactly. in California and, and, and shutting down the electricity by PG&E. We have to know this stuff as an investor. Whether or not you consider yourself green, there are economic implications, and, and we've got a uh, you know, process that we want to put in the to research, and we think that's important for investors in here uh, as well to consider this asset class. 
Well, that, yeah, I agree. I think you kind of, at some point, have to have some kind of metrics, right, to compare issue to issue, especially as ESG becomes more important. And you do think about what that can do in terms of pushing municipalities to embrace uh, that trend. So certainly something we're watching. Hey, Gabe, thank you so much. Gabe Diedrich, uh, he's Portfolio Manager of Municipal Fixed Income, Wells Fargo Asset Management, on the phone from Milwaukee. Well, smoke. All right, well, let's talk about one of the big features in the magazine this week. Lauren Etter co-wrote it. She is Projects and Investigations reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from Los Angeles, where she is based. Here in New York City, we have Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And the story is about Juul. And I'll read the headline. Juul is the new big tobacco as anger over teen vaping escalates. Lauren, uh, let me start with you because this is a story that is clearly at the core of a public health crisis. I think it's fair to say, but it's interesting to note, and you guys dig into this, where Juul came from. This is a Silicon Valley company after all. Yes, that's right. This is a Silicon Valley company. Uh, Like many other Silicon Valley companies, it started at Stanford University. Uh, The two founders of Juul, they were studying uh, for their MBAs at Stanford and decided one day, smoking over cigarettes, that they wanted to reinvent smoking. So that's what they set out to do many years ago, uh, really about 10 years ago. And they eventually wound up uh, inventing the Juul. Which got a lot of people really excited because the nick it's effectively like a really perfect nicotine delivery device and and lauren you part of the story goes into this like they in this presentation they did at uh at business school um they actually showed what goes into a cigarette and it's paper and tobacco and they deconstruct it and they kind of make a joke that it was like you know ancient technology right and, and the promise of Juul was, hey, there's a lot of other stuff in cigarettes that aren't good. We can just give you the good part, the nicotine that gets you a little buzzed. But there was also yeah, from the get go, yeah. from the get go, you know, moving fast, like you know, is the ethos of Silicon Valley. There was also the downside that there were some things that kind of started to go off the tracks a little bit. What did you guys discover in your reporting? Yeah, I mean, just like most Silicon Valley companies, tech startups, there was definitely a lot of pressure for them to grow really fast. And they really embraced that ethos. And along the way, as they started growing, they just uh, they just got the product out there on the market so quickly, they didn't anticipate some of the things that would happen. A, that a lot of people, including teens, would get addicted to their product. And then also that they would end up in sort of what's become a public health nightmare. Um, they, they had some trouble with some of their e-liquid early on. That's the highly addictive nicotine juice that goes in their, uh, cigarette in the, in the jewel. And they also had some problems with, uh, e-liquid seeping out into people's mouths and they were getting burning lips. So like, I think as they treated the product, like any other tech startup product, like a, like a phone or any other device that would be, that would be pumped out of Silicon Valley, they, as they grew quickly and embraced that model, I think they really hit some, made some hiccups along the way and ended up addicting uh, millions of children. That's right. Because, you know, unlike a phone, which I guess you can still be addicted to a phone, like we're dealing with a different kind of health here. And it's one that, you know, the, the tobacco industry is well aware of the consequences of, of, of what happens when you create a product that can, you know, get in front of kids. 
So what happened on that front, Lauren? Because they didn't intend this to be for teens, right? Right. Well, this is really where Jewel got off on the wrong foot. And this was early on. They launched in about in the in June of 2015. And the very first decision that they made out of the gate was, let's make this as cool as possible so as many people as possible will buy it. So what they ended up doing was marketing like crazy on Instagram and social media, and they created a very big, splashy ad campaign that featured really young-looking women and hot guys and using the product in really cool places like nightclubs. They sponsored lots of different so-called activation events where they would have free they would hand out free jewels to everybody and just as a reminder this is a product that is highly highly addictive and that's really the innovation that jewel brought to the table is they invented a liquid an e-liquid that would addict people so the combination of them having this highly addictive product and then marketing it to a very young demographic i think is really where they got into trouble now now jewel says that their their demographic has all demographic has always been ages 25 to 45 but we talked to former Jewel insiders who said, you know, we would go to some of these events and it was clear that the people attending them uh, were not, were much younger than 25. So I think that that's where the problem came in. And then, then they started right. marketing it really in high schools. So uh, and then you had a bunch of high school kids getting addicted too. Which is exactly how you find yourself in the middle of a vaping crisis that right. has a lot of people really interested from FDA on down. And it almost makes all of vaping, which you know is basically a category that Jewel helped popularize, suddenly look a little cloudy. Exactly. It's a great story. Lauren Etter joining us from Los Angeles. She wrote the story. And Joel Weber here with us in New York City. We should mention Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio, has campaigned and given money in support of a ban on flavored e-cigarettes and tobacco. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Kevin Nicholson is back with us. He's chief market strategist at Riverfront Investment Group. $8 billion in assets under management based in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, he is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. I know you had to remind me that you were here in April. <laughs> A lot has happened between <laughs> April and now. How do you make sense of the news flow uh, and then just kind of developing a strategy that's a smart long-term strategy. I think, first of all, you kind of have to take the news flow with a grain of salt. And you cannot react to every single uh, tweet or every single headline that's out there. I mean, and that's kind of how we've approached the U.S.-China situation in trade. Because if you think about it, this is the third ceasefire that we've had. We had one in December of 2018. We had one in June. We kind of have one now. And I expect that, you know, we will have more ceasefires um, because 
obviously this is a long process and there's so many things that are being discussed and issues that are being discussed and they're just not going to get done right away. So is it shame on all of us? We knew this was going to be complicated. There's multi layers to any kind of trade deal and especially when there's some, you know, when you're talking about, you know, one between the United States and China. So shame on all of us in misreading the, the signals or have the signals been right in that it's, it's not going so well. I think that it's a, probably somewhere in between the two. I think that oftentimes what happens is that we get so caught up in the, you know, the quick soundbite. And, you know, the president and his cabinet have given us signals that things are going well. But then, and, you know, the very next second, uh, you will see a story that says things aren't going well. Right. So you don't really know who to believe. And so that's why when we think about building a portfolio right now, we're thinking about, trying to be pretty close to neutral relative to our benchmarks. Uh, we've moved money more to the U.S. over the last year, largely because of the trade war. And, and you know, the rest of the world is pretty much in a manufacturing recession. Yeah. And they also have some political issues uh, overseas. So we believe that the U.S. is the best house in the global neighborhood, in the bad global neighborhood. And so we've been keeping money more towards the U.S., but we're also kind of not taking on too much risk because you never know when the negative headlines are going to take markets down. But I believe that we're going to continue to be fairly range-bound here unless we do get a deal. Um, I think that the S&P is going to have a, a tough time breaking over 3000 if you don't get a trade deal. And, and I think that on the downside, we, we've seen support around 2840 Right. So when you think about the headlines and the fluctuations that we have in the market, one of the reasons it feels like maybe we're able to ignore the headlines a little bit is the underlying consumer sentiment has remained strong. Whenever we have people in here who aren't from New York, Washington, L.A., San Francisco, we always want to ask them, what's it like on the ground in, in, in Richmond? You know, you're talking to people, you know, you're taking your kids to dance class or, you know, you're standing around sort of waiting to, to pick them up. Like, what are folks saying about their feeling about the economy? You know, people feel good about the economy because they have jobs. Mm. I mean, and, you, and that has come through in the JOLTS report. It's come through in the, uh, you know, non-farm payroll report. People are comfortable as long as they are working. And, you know, wages are growing, you know, close to 3%. And so, you know, it's higher than inflation. So, you know, real wages are actually growing. So I think that overall, the consumer has been the rock that has kept uh, this expansion going. And I think that they will continue to be the rock to keep this expansion going. Because obviously, business confidence has uh, waned given the fact yeah. of the trade war. And you have CEOs and, and CFOs uh, confidence going down. And they're not spending from business capex. So you say you're continuing to focus on big U.S. companies? Yes. What in particular? So we really, our strategy has been, we were had a nuanced strategy to growth. And so what we were looking at doing is we were making sure that we were looking for high dividend growers that had, that were supported by strong free cash flow. We also were looking at companies. So not GE. No. <laughs> and we were looking at companies that, you know, made our lives more efficient. So that's going to put us in places like technology and financials, more specifically looking at software and services and looking at banks. 
And so what worries you the most? And again, sort of going back to what you're seeing on the ground and you're talking to customers who I know some of whom are in in Richmond, but many of whom are outside. What are they most worried about trade aside, but when it comes to things that might change the way they feel about their jobs, the way they feel about their portfolio? I think most people in general are just, they're worried about the dreaded R word, recession. And I think that has largely just come from the media because when I talk to folks about you know their companies, their companies aren't laying off folks. Mm-hmm. You're not hearing about layoffs. You're not hearing – and they're also seeing people – talk about quitting their jobs and moving to the next jobs to get higher wages. So I, you know, I I really think that most of the worry that's coming from Main Street is due to the headlines in trade. And trade. But so if we get, um, I just want to say American Air is said to discuss deeper ties with Brazil's GOL. So we continue to see kind of airline um, tie-ups. So interesting. So if we even get a mini trade deal of some sort, something that shows that they can put something on paper and keep the process going, does that mean the equity markets rally as a result or is that kind of factored in already? I think it's factored in. I think that that's what you've seen the last two days. Uh, The rally that we've had is all on the hope that we're going to get a mini deal. Um, And if we don't, I think that we'll test that bottom of that range again. Uh, Only about 30 seconds left. What have you seen or heard from the Fed that makes you more comfortable or more worried in terms of what they may do next? Well, I mean, I think that the Fed is a given that they're going to cut rates uh, at the end of the month. Um, But the one thing that does concern me a bit is that they're running out of dry powder. I mean, right. if they keep cutting, what's going to happen when we We're really have a recession? A, when we have a recession, right. And I think that the bar is going to get higher after this month, and it's increasingly higher because you have more dissenters uh, in, on the FOMC board. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Kevin, good to see you again. Oh, thank, thank you, you. Thank you. Kevin Nicholson. He's chief market strategist at Riverfront Investment Group. $8 billion in assets under management based in Richmond, Virginia, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.